right. Well, uh, this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 38. And uh, we will be, uh, as I said in the prayer, we'll be concluding uh, this section uh, that Jesus uh, is been speaking about, about uh, things that are going to happen soon, things that will happen at the end. Uh, so we'll be looking at Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 38. I'll bring the text up on the screen. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we've been talking about the future and what will happen. And we may be wise enough as, as Christians to uh, not give ourselves over to fortune tellers and, and baseless uh, superstitious speculations, but we all do have to admit that we care about the future. We care about what's going to happen in the future, and we all want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, but why is that? Why do we as, as human beings care about the future? Well, one theologian I was reading uh, in this week, he reminded me that uh, the reason is simply because all that we care about is bound up in the future, whether it's the immediate future uh, or, uh, or the ultimate future. Everything that we care about, our family, our friends, our community, our lives, our eternal destiny is all bound up in the future. And... Now, uh, concern for the future is, is, is therefore a normal thing, uh, and, and, but if it's not approached rightly as Christians, it can lead us to unhealthy places which can distract us from the work that God has called us to do. And so today, Jesus is giving us a parable, first of all, a parable of unusual certainty about the end, and then he's going to very helpfully give us some direction for the present while we live upon the earth. And we'll look at each one of those in our, in, in our time together this morning. So first, in verses 29 through 33, we are presented with a parable of unusual certainty. And this is the uh, parable, of the, uh, the figure of the fig tree that uh, Jesus places before us in verses 29 through 31. It's a very simple parable. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Jesus says, hey, uh, you know, you know about fig trees and hey, why not all the trees? <laughs> Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Just think about trees. Okay. And you're like, I like thinking about trees. Right. And so it's a, as soon as the trees, especially the fig tree, fig tree was the first tree to leaf as summertime is, uh, approaches. And so, uh, and so it says just as the trees are, 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 are leaving and, and there's 
the leaves are coming out, uh, you know summertime's here. You know this changing of the seasons is occurring because the leaves are coming out. And he said, just in the same way, when you see all of these things, like the leaves on a tree, that then you know the kingdom of God is near. Now I want to hold up a second here and, and, and just kind of back up and, and summarize what Jesus covered bef- previously and what he's referring to when he says these things. Because what he highlighted, because this is, remember, this passage stretches from all the way back to verse 1. So verses 1 through 28, he's been talking about these things. And so, and so first of all, he, Jesus highlighted that there were things that were going to occur which were not signs of the end, even though they perhaps foreshadow or picture the end, including, but not limited to, the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, the occurrence of wars and natural disasters, persecution of Christians, uh, persecution that would run so deep that families would even turn on each other. He says these things will be incredibly difficult and awful, but for Christians that Jesus will be with us and that he will give us the words to speak uh, even when uh, we are called against our will to testify about our faith. And then Jesus describes things that do signify the end. He talks about how the heavens will be coming undone, essentially, with the sun, the moon, and the stars doing all kinds of crazy things, along with the ocean being so threatening and destructive on a, uh, on a worldwide basis that the nations of the world will be in distress. So this is, Jesus is not, you know, concerned about the polar ice caps melting and, and, and you know, the water level rising a few inches this year. This is essentially creation coming apart above, below, and around us. And then he says that the Son of Man, which we know is Jesus, the Christ, will return. And so just as we concluded last week, the, these things uh, that he's talking about that, are, that will be terrifying to the world, Jesus says are actually signs that our redemption is near. And Jesus says that means the kingdom of God is near. And don't miss that connection between the fullness of redemption and the fullness of the kingdom of God. Because redemption is experienced in part now, even as we live as Christians with the gospel. It's ex- redemption is experienced to a greater degree when, uh, when, our, when our physical life ends on the earth and we go to be with the Lord in spirit. But even then, it's only in part. The fullness of our redemption will only come when the Son of Man returns and ushers in the kingdom of God. But while we wait for that to happen, Jesus wants us to know two things. And the first of which is that we need to know that until the Son of Man comes back, there will be the persistence of faithlessness and unbelief in the world until the very end. Verse 32. You may have heard about the perseverance of the saints until the end, uh, how Christ will be uh, by his spirit uphold the church until the very end. And that is true. But here Jesus is talking about the perseverance of the wicked, the perseverance of wicked unbelief into the end as well. Now, verse 32 has caused a lot of understandable confusion. When Jesus says this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place, what generation is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the people in, 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 in in earshot of him right there? Is he talking about 
the greatest generation or millennials? What is he talking about when he says this generation? Now, in, in saying that he would um, come back in the lifetime of the apostles, uh, it, it, you know, is he, is he saying that? Is he saying, I will come back in the lifetime of the apostles? And, and is, is Jesus wrong? There's plenty of unbelievers who point to a passage like this and say, see, Jesus thought he would come back within a decade or so, and uh, he didn't. He was wrong. Therefore, not the Savior. Christianity over. All right? Uh, now, there are plenty of reasons to reject that conclusion, that understanding of what Jesus is saying. But uh, one of the clearest ones is that in Mark chapter 13, Jesus explicitly says he doesn't know when the end will come. He doesn't know when even he as the Son of Man is going to return. And so Jesus is not going to say that there and then here go, eh, about 20 years, right? Like he's not doing that. So um, uh, it, it, now I read a bunch of uh, scholarship on this, and there are a lot of suggestions about what Jesus might mean by this generation, and you will rise up and call me blessed this morning because I'm not going to tell them all to you. Um, but uh, I narrowed it down to two, to two options. These are the two options that I narrowed it down in my own process of thinking through. Jesus could mean uh, the present generation, but only be applying what he says that these things, all these things will take place, that, that the scope of that, they all is really just applying to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. So he's talking about those things that will occur, and those things did occur in the lifetime of his audience. But others have persuasively argued, and this is the second option, that Jesus, uh, when he uses the word generation, if you go back and look at how he uses it, how uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke particularly, uh, when Jesus uses generation, he uses it in a pretty technical sense, referring not to a specific people in a chronological period of time, but to refer to a specific kind of people. This generation uh, is a term that Jesus uses to describe, uh, um, and to give you a quote here from Daryl Ralph Davis, who, to describe, quote, those who have been, are, and will be light-rejecting, kingdom-opposing, Messiah-spurning people. So Jesus, uh, uh, the doctor continues, uh, so Jesus in verse 32 se seems to assure us that at the end, unbelieving, Christ-rejecting people will still remain but will by no means escape judgment when the Son of Man returns, end quote. The point here is simply that the world will never be free of unbelief and opposition to God and his gospel, at least until the Son of Man returns. So there will never be a time where America will be a purely and truly Christian nation. There will always be unbelief and opposition to the gospel Within our, within our own borders, let alone in the rest of the world. But lest we doubt Jesus here, uh, he assures us that his promises are sure. In verse 33, you know, there are many things about Jesus and about uh, things that Jesus says, things that Jesus does that are shocking and amazing. Uh, there are things that he says that confound, challenge, and convict us. But I want you to think about what Jesus says in verse 33. Because when you and I look around at the earth, the oceans, and the sky, do we normally say to ourselves, all this is passing away? 
right? Usually when we look at creation, who do we think's passing away? This guy, right? We feel how small we are. We feel how insignificant we are, how powerless we are, how weak we are, how transient we are. That's not what Jesus thinks when he looks out over creation. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. But what won't pass away? My words will not pass away. You know, we just think about that the earth, because the earth was here before me, like me personally, and you. And the earth will continue on as after our, you know, my physical existence ends upon this earth. But Jesus says that the very thing that is so permanent to us, the heavens and the earth will pass away. Because now, now, if we think about Jesus, this makes sense. Because ultimately, uh, speaking, creation itself is transient when compared to the words of Christ. It was by the word of creation, we know from the scriptures, that the, uh, by the word of creation, who is the very Son of God himself, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, in whom, through whom, and for whom the universe was made, that's who Jesus is. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. And so it makes sense at the outset that the word of God in the flesh, who created everything, would also outlast everything that was made. This fundamental, fundamental reality of the enduring nature of the divine word of Jesus undergirds these very words of Christ, the promises that are made by him and in him, the covenant promises for which he represents that speak to the end of all suffering, persecution, and wickedness. The promises that address the terror of judgment for the sinner. The promise of glory, life, peace, and rest, and joy eternal. Christ himself, who is the almighty yes, will outlast the end of creation itself. All the sorrows struggles, our bodies, the nations of the world, the mountains that loom and the seas that roar will pass away, but Christ and his word will never pass away. So hear his word, believe his word, for in it you will find the only assurance that actually works, the only assurance that will never let you down. The end, Jesus says, will come just as sure as the Mississippi humidity and heat lets you know summertime is here. So the Son of Man will come. But until then, do not be surprised by, by the continuing and enduring faithlessness in the world. But place your assurance not upon the continuance of creation, but on the enduring word of God and Jesus Christ. And secondly, Jesus gives us very clear direction for the present in verses 34 to 38. Jesus tells us that in view of uh, all these things he said about the end, he tells us to do two things that are related to each other, but two things 
Uh, and then he also, at the very end, lays out an example for us. But he, he, the first thing he says in verse 34 to 35, and he says, In view of all of this, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. In verse 34 and 35. Because there is a dangerous trap that believers can fall into. Two key temptations he cites that will lure us away from God's calling upon our lives. That we may not lose our salvation but we may lose the significant rewards that we are promised for faithfulness. And so so the first one, the the first temptation here is to simply distract oneself by overindulgence in life's comfort. Specifically, he cites uh, drunkenness and dissipation, which is essentially, if you look it up in the Greek, it means kind of like a drunken hangover, a drunken haze. Now, this is not outlawing alcohol specifically on the whole, as much as it is identifying the problem of believers gorging ourselves in the comforts of this world to the point of excess, where we have hangovers from overconsumption that cause us to be ineffective in the calling that God has placed upon our lives. It is a sin to be drunk. But why is it a sin to be drunk? There are many practical reasons for health and safety that we could cite. But what what Jesus is highlighting here is that because it distracts us and numbs us from our calling to watchfulness, alertness as servants of the kingdom of God. And so this represents not just alcoholic beverages but a whole class of diversions that include food and nearly uh, what they couldn't have even imagined as as far as the biblical writers could, uh, but the near infinite amount of, of electronic entertainment at our disposal, video games, movies, TV shows, sports, YouTube, that, that, that would swallow our very lives in every waking moment if we allow it. That's the first temptation that Jesus warns us against. Because watch yourselves. Because it's tempting. You want what it offers. To be numbed for a moment. From maybe the hardship or affliction of life. To to just drown yourself in some comfort. But the second temptation is almost the exact opposite. It is not to be distracted through excessive consumption but to be distracted by anxiety over the cares of this life, which, as Jesus said, are passing away. Jesus means that we could, as believers, become so preoccupied with our circumstances, with our health, with the state of politics, with our homes, our finances, that we lose sight of the kingdom of God, which is coming. This means that we, that we ought not to pat ourselves on the back simply because we are self-disciplined and sober, unlike, unlike those slovenly believers over there. Now, I didn't mean to point to this side of the room, just so you know. It wasn't, it was not association, so. But, uh, but we have to be careful that we don't blindly fall on the, on the exact other side of the ditch. And call it righteous because of pride. J.C. Ryle wrote about these twin temptations, saying that this exhortation from Jesus should impress humility upon us. 
He says, quote, there is no sin so great, but a great, a great saint might fall into it. And there is no saint so great, but he may fall into a great sin. Jesus tells us that if we do not watch ourselves and avoid these two great errors, which while being very different, share a commonality, distraction from the coming of Christ to judge the earth, then we'll miss it. Not that we'll miss salvation, not that we'll miss a return, but Christ will come and we will be caught unawares and to our great sorrow. And so he tells us what to avoid, but then he tells us what to do. He tells us to stay awake through prayer. To stay awake through prayer in verse 36. The activity that he mentions here it, it, that is key to a spiritual alertness and strength in the midst of terrible hardship is not devoted reading of biblical commentaries. It's not hardcore commitment to, to, to good political activism. It is prayer. You know, like I was afraid you were going to say that. How will the church survive the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the coming persecution? How will the church survive the corruptions that will spring up from within and the pressures and opposition from outside of it? How will the church not be lulled to sleep or to a lukewarm apathy that makes the Lord want to vomit the church out of his mouth because, of the, because they've become dull by the comforts of the world? By prayer. By prayer. Jesus says, by prayer we will have the strength we need to escape. By prayer we will stand before the Son of Man. Now we have to be careful here. Because by saying by prayer, it is not saying that, that we are now using strength as some kind of exposition of our, per, of our personal strength and virtue. I'm going to show how strong I am, but my robust and wonderful prayer life. Look at me. I'm a, I'm a spiritual he-man with my amazing prayer life. This is not an appeal to some form of Christian stoicism. That feels nothing when deep pain or loss and grief pierces our hearts. One who thinks they are securing favor by God because they are of their personal abundant, rich, and wonderful prayer life by their own estimation, or maybe the estimation of others, does not actually understand their sinfulness and weakness, and nor do they understand the nature and power of prayer. We do not pray in the weakness and the fecklessness of our own names. Whose name do we pray in? The name of Christ. My oldest son's name is Boaz, which means strength generally, but technically means in him is strength. Paul says that the secret of contentment is not the power to change our circumstances, but to have the strength to endure any circumstance which is found in him. Prayer, then, is not for the strong. It's for the weak. It's for the weak and needy Christian who is tempted, who, who desperately wants to numb themselves to drunken excess, 
or to want themselves to, to, to worry themselves into a paralyzed anxiety because of the sorrow of the world, because it gives some illusion of control. Prayer is, is, is for the Christian who doesn't have the strength to face the day. And Christian, Jesus says, if you will pray, you will find the strength that you need in Christ. For in him we are strong and able to endure all things. All things. The passage ends with Christ, who we know and who Christ knows, is about to be arrested. In the next chapter, he's going to be plotted against arrested, murdered on the cross. He knows it's coming. And he knows, and he knows. So what does he do? Does he ditch out, go to a safe spot? No. Luke says, day after day, he continued going to the temple and teaching, and the people came to hear the word of God. Jesus presents for us at the close of this passage an example for us as his disciples, his followers, that we would live our lives after him. How shall we live in light of the future, a future that is uncertain, a future where the only thing that seems to be guaranteed is is suffering and death? Well, we trust that the signs of the end will present themselves like the signs of the changing of the seasons. It will be clear upon the whole world. We won't miss it. But we are taught to be watchful, keeping alert by avoiding the distractions of this world and keeping our eyes on Christ through prayer. And though the unbelief and wickedness of men will persist to the end, we know that they too shall pass away. And all that will be left is that eternal word of grace in Christ. And we know as his people that he is more than enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a true Savior and a sure promise. Lord, we pray that your word would stir us this morning, would awaken us. Father, we, your word teaches us that we, need to, that we receive all good gifts from you. That every wonderful meal, every vacation, every time together, every, every blessing comes from your hand and that we, that we are called to receive them and to give you joyful thanks for them. But Father, may we not take your gifts and turn and abuse them and turn them into a means of just numbing ourselves from the hardships of this world because we just don't want to deal with it. We just want to avoid it. And likewise, Lord, may we not give ourselves over to anxiety and worries over the, over the cares of this life, that we are missing the eternal significance of the calling that is upon our lives. And Father, we pray that we would stay alert, we would stay awake, particularly through prayer, praying for one another, praying with one another, that we would not neglect prayer as your people. Forgive us, Father, for for how we have. Forgive forgive me for how I have. And help us to be a prayer-filled people. A people who are not strong in themselves with independent prayer lives. But prayer lives that are soaking with that, that, that 
grace-dependent helplessness, that boldness that goes before the throne by the blood of Jesus and rejoices in our weakness because for where we are weak, you are strong. And we know that ultimately nothing will defeat us. Nothing can destroy us for we are in Christ and we are more than victors in him. So, Father, may we rejoice, may we serve, and may we pray until your Son returns and your kingdom comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now.